Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, working to change how cancer is treated with personalized medicine. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anise Chagpar and Peter Schwartz. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about how CRISPR is transforming cancer research with Dr. Jun Liu. Dr. Liu is an associate professor of genetics at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgery and oncology. Jun, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about your research and some of the new technologies that you're using. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. So, so basically, we are very interested in cancer uh, in general, and uh, we have two major interests. One is to understand leukemia, which is a special cancer that's originating from the blood cell system. Uh, we're also interested in the immune responses that's against normal <coughs> other type of cancers, like what you normally hear about, we, we so-call uh, solid cancers, uh, like uh, you know breast cancer, uh, prostate cancer, colon cancer, etc. And we have been uh, working with uh, melanoma as well as colon cancer ourselves. So it sounds like you've been doing a lot of work. Tell us a little bit more about some of the unique aspects of your cancer research. Yeah, so we have been uh, very interested in uh, several type of questions that we are particularly interested in understanding how cancers work. And one thing that we are trying to understand is how do a normal cell uh, go uh, weird and become bad and become cancer cells. Uh, number two is we're trying to understand the wiring, molecular wiring within cancer cells. And the molecular wiring we are particularly interested in, what we, are, we call it so-called non-coding regions of the genome. Um, you may have heard of the, the human genome is consisted of uh, important pieces of DNA that we call the coding piece of DNA that uh, encode so-called protein uh, genes. Uh, and these uh, account for roughly 2% or less than 2% of the genome. And the rest of 98% of genome is so-called non-coding parts of genome. Uh, there are DNA out there. Uh, initially, we don't recognize much out of it. Uh, we think they're less important. But it turns out that they are there for a reason. They're not just junk. Uh, and so we have been particularly interested in the non-coding parts of genome and how they control the coding parts of genome. So tell us a little bit more about that because, you know, intuitively, one would think that the coding parts of the genome are the ones that make the proteins and the proteins are the things that make function. Um, but the non-coding parts, um, they control the coding parts. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so so you're absolutely right. So the non-coding parts of genome, at least through what we currently understand, one part of their function is to control the protein coding genes themselves. Uh, and uh, and they can have many different ways to do that. Uh, for example, one of the type of things we work with is so-called non-coding RNA. So these are uh, RNAs that are um, produced in the cells, uh, and these RNA, once they're produced, they control how much the protein are made. Uh, so this is one way they control that. But there are many other ways uh, non-coding parts of genome can control uh, protein coding genes. So that's one way the non-coding parts of genome can be important. Another part, part of things the non-coding parts of genome can also be important is that they can control themselves. Uh, there are so-called non-coding genes themselves that can be controlled by non-coding parts of genome. So it's sort of layer by layer uh, that can have very sophisticated control uh, of the human genome. 
And you mentioned that another part of your research is to figure out what makes a normal cell go rogue, what makes a normal cell mutate into a cancer cell. Do the non-coding parts of the genome have a role to play in doing that? Yeah, so uh, that's a very, very good question. So currently, our understanding in human cancer per se uh, has been um, more heavily focused on the protein parts of the genome. We know that when the cancers initially go wrong, for example, in the case of leukemia, uh, it occurs initially in the stem cells of normal stem cells. And these normal stem cells that normally give rise to the blood cells in, in the blood-producing system. Uh, and when the protein-coding genes go mutated, uh, they will allow the stem cells to become bad in some sense, uh, and eventually become, for example, leukemia. Uh, and there are now more and more research in the non-coding parts of genome because many times we cannot uh, completely explain uh, the phenomena of how does a normal cell go from a normal cell to become a cancer cell, and they have to rely potentially on the non-coding parts of genome. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, the new sequencing technologies that being uh, really helping the uh, science, uh, especially biomedical science, has found that there are uh, mutations in the non-coding parts of genome, and some of them do seem to contribute to the initiation of cancer. So let's talk a little bit more about new technologies, because certainly one would think that after the explosion with the Human Genome Project, when that was finally revealed, everyone thought that this would be kind of like the great discovery that would help us to find the cures to all cancers. How has the Human Genome Project and understanding uh, the genome really helped us? And where do we still have to go in terms of finding those cures? Because a lot of people thought once the human genome was decoded, we would have all of the answers, and then we would be able to find the cures to cancer and everything else. Uh, that's, uh, again, a very interesting question. Actually, <clears throat> I still remember very early on, you know, you know, actually the government has declared that we're going to have a cancer cure within how many years? That already happened quite a number of years ago. Uh, and uh, apparently up to now, we, can, uh, we still have some success against cancer, but there's still other things that we don't have success against yet. Uh, so, <clears throat> and, uh, but from the, from the understanding of the how cancer works, the Human Genome Project has played a very, very important role. And I would say it's a pretty profound role. And I remember at that time when the cancer genome or the human genome was initially uh, revealed, uh, roughly around the year 2000, I was a student at that time. Uh, and uh, I remember there was a sort of a guess game, you know, among scientists say, okay, how many genes there are in the human genome? And I uh, and the guesses range very widely from uh, probably, you know, 100,000 genes to, to some other numbers, maybe millions of genes. But it turns out that uh, after the human genome has been sequenced, we start to realize that there are much, many fewer genes in the genome, according to protein-coding genes, of course, at the time that we recognize. There are some, somewhere around 20,000 protein-coding genes in the genome. But now, of course, we understand that, again, it's a very... Uh, initial understanding of the problem uh, because uh, now we know there are many non-coding parts of genome that actually play a very important role to control the protein codes parts of genome, which is only 2%. So, so it uh, has dramatically enhanced our understanding on the global scale of how things work. Uh, and uh, some of these things are starting to bear fruits uh, and uh, we are now seeing uh, many, many uh, new findings in the cancer field. For example, uh, now we have much better catalog of what are genes that can contribute to cancers. Uh, some genes can be mutated, they cause so-called oncogenes. Some genes got mutated, they're so-called tumor suppressors. One is to enhance cancer, one is to block cancer. Uh, if you uh, 
gained extra copies or extra activity of so-called oncogenes, uh, then you can have a chance to, from a normal cell to go to a cancer cell, uh, or you can lose the function of a tumor suppressor gene and they can be reduced. And this uh, has to be contributed a lot to our ability now to map things back to the human genome and now start to cause which genes are mutated. And we have way, way, way better understanding of the cancer genome now in terms of how which genes got mutated, et cetera, nowadays compared to 20 years ago. Yeah. And it seems like although we've learned a lot and we've gained our knowledge and we now know about oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes, we also know that it's far more complex than what we initially thought in terms of how these genes are regulated, how they are packaged, and so on. That's absolutely right. Yeah. So so tell us a little bit more about uh, kind of the technology that we're now using to look at genes and how they control cancers. So if we know that gaining an oncogene increases your risk of cancer, losing a tumor suppressor gene increases your risk of cancer, what are we doing about that? Or do we have technology that can actually help us uh, in terms of uh, correcting the problem? Yeah, so uh, so there are several things that being done. So one thing, of course, we need to understand uh, and sort of have a catalog, sort of you look at a phone book or something, uh, where you can say, oh, look, this gene is doing this in this kind of tissue, and they can potentially contribute to this kind of cancer. And that's basically basically being done by, you know, sequencing the, the, the genomes of the cancer uh, specimens that we can uh, collect. Uh, there you can sequence to see which DNA got changed, and then you can, can compare that to the human genome uh, and say, okay, these are genes potentially got mutated. So once you have a catalog like this, then the question is, are everything on this catalog important or not? Uh, so these require a specific experiment to start to manipulate and change those genes we can increase those genes activity or decrease those genes activity. And one of the technologies, so-called CRISPR, I will probably mention later, uh, to basically allow us as a tool to, uh, to change things around and to start to see whether these genes that cataloged in this, in this book are everything important or some of them are more important than the others. And once we have that, then we can move on to potentially therapies and say, okay, this looks very important gene and the cancer seems to be dependent on it. And if we can find a, either a small molecule uh, like a normal drugs you normally hear about or other ways such as using immune therapies uh, to, uh, to attack tumors. So, uh, so that allows us to pave the, 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 the ground for, you know, allowing us to go to from a research side to, to best side. So tell us more about this CRISPR technology, because it seems to me that this is a technology that people may have heard about, but nobody really understands exactly how it works. So can you tell us a little bit more about how it, how it was developed, how it works, and how it's being used in research? Yeah, so CRISPR technology, uh, the initial discovery of CRISPR technology was actually from some research in uh, bacteria. So uh, we think that we are very sophisticated as a, you know, organism, uh, humans, and we have two uh, immune systems, uh, immune molecular systems that control immune responses. Uh, and, uh, and in bacteria, we thought they are very primitive. They are just, you know, um, bugs. Uh, but it turns out that uh, these bugs have their own immune system as well. So CRISPR was uh, discovered initially as the immune system of bacteria. So when bacteria got uh, intruded from by other bacteria or uh, viruses that's uh, attacking the bacteria, uh, the bacteria has a very intelligent way uh, 
which is using CRISPR, to document their invaders. Uh, they say, okay, these guys invaded me, so next time I see it, I will destroy it. So, so CRISPR basically is a way to do that. And the way CRISPR works is they take uh, intruding DNA, intruders' DNA as pieces and put in their own genome. And the next time they see the same piece of DNA, they start to cut it and destroy it. So this is initially uh, discovered as sort of an immune response uh, by bacteria to help them to survive against invaders. Uh, then uh, roughly around 2012, 2013, uh, scientists start to say, okay, maybe we can utilize this as a way to help us to change uh, the mammalian cells, the mammal cells, uh, including human cells, cancer cells, for example, where we can specifically design things so we can manipulate and change specific Uh, sequences within the human genome. And this has dramatically allowed us to expand our tool set to change genes, for example, increasing genes activity or decreasing genes activity through this kind of approach. Tell me more. So I get the whole idea of CRISPR being like a bacteria's immune system. They they recognize something foreign. They say, I'm going to understand what this is. They incorporate that DNA into their own so that the next time they see it, They can kill it because they know that it's foreign, very much like the human uh, immune system. But how does that help scientists then to increase the number of genes or decrease the number of genes or change uh, the genes in a particular cell? How how exactly do you translate Mm -hmm. that bacterial immune system into kind of a gene editing uh, program? Yeah, so that's through a very uh, sort of some engineering process that have been done on the molecular front. So we, instead of just like bacteria, say, okay, let's take the intruder's DNA and put some pieces into our own genome, which is probably going to be dangerous to do. Uh, we actually shortcut that step. So we just say, okay, look, uh, we know that bacteria, say, use their pieces of DNA stored in their genome to attack foreign DNA. Um, but the, the same machinery can work on whatever piece of DNA as well. So basically what you can do is you can just take, uh, for example, you can design any piece of, against any piece of DNA in the human genome you want to, you'd want to change, and you can design a sequence and use a CRISPR to say, okay, I will go in there and particularly change a sequence within this part of human genome. So this is basically how uh, the CRISPR is used in uh, human cells. Well, you know, that sounds really interesting, and we're going to have to learn more about how CRISPR works and how this really has changed cancer research right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned for more information with my guest, Dr. John Liu. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, dedicated to advancing options and providing hope for people living with cancer. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a Medical Minute about head and neck cancers. Although the percentage of oral and head and neck cancer patients in the United States is only about 5% of all diagnosed cancers, there are challenging side effects associated with these types of cancer and their treatment. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for head and neck cancers, and in many cases, less radical surgeries are able to preserve nerves, arteries, and muscles in the neck, enabling patients to move, speak, breathe, and eat normally after surgery. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Jun Liu. We're talking about CRISPR and how this new technology really is transforming cancer research. 
And essentially, Dr. Liu, what you were telling us is that this is a way of editing genes um, using bacterial technology that these bacteria have essentially evolved to try to understand foreign invaders into their own genome. Is that right? That's right. And so, so using this technology, you can take any gene that you want, and you can either amplify it, make more copies, or mutate it, or do various things. So tell us how you use that in terms of cancer research. Yeah, so there are two different ways that we can use CRISPR to uh, change uh, control the genes, basically, in the genome. Uh, so one way is actually just use directly, as you mentioned about, in the bacteria case. So bacteria, what they do is that they can use a piece of DNA as the we call a gui- guidance sequence. So you can use that guidance sequence and destroy anything that looks exactly like the guidance sequence. So this is a way how they destroy the intruder DNA. So what we can do, utilize the same thing within, for example, cancer cells, is that we can artificially create a piece of DNA that's exactly the same as the DNA we want to destroy inside the, the genome. And then you can put this, couple this with the protein machinery that this is how CRISPR works, and this will actually make a cut uh, in the DNA. And this cut will lead to a short, uh, we call it deletion. Basically, you'll, you'll get rid of a few uh, pieces of sequences within the human genome at, at exactly at the place where you designed against. So, so this allows us to do so-called uh, gene knockouts. Basic gene knockouts, but basically what it does is say, okay, we want to specifically inactivate a particular gene in the genome. So this is the one way we can use it for. The second way we can use it for is we don't make cuts, but we use the same machinery, but don't, we don't make cuts in the genome. So the genome is still intact, but we can modify around the place where the sequence binds to uh, and recognizes. Uh, and so let's say, okay, we can make a changes uh, in the 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 regulatory parts of the genome so that once this sequence we designed guides the protein to that particular place in the genome, it will lead to increased production of RNA from that particular place. So then you can basically control uh, increased copy numbers uh, for whatever it can make proteins for. Uh, so, so there are basically two different ways, uh, at least two different ways you can use it for. So by doing so, you can basically both increase the gene of interest or decrease the gene, gene activity of interest. So scientists have worked out how to either cut DNA or amplify DNA in this artificial kind of matrix. Mm -hmm. And then what do you do? Then you take this and you put it into a mouse and you see what happens if you amplify a gene or if you knock out a gene? Yeah, exactly. So you can do this uh, in a mouse or you can do this in a culture dish. Uh, So basically what we, for example, many times we have questions for is, look, this sequence got mutated in the human cancers. does this piece of sequence, which could be a protein coding gene sequence, uh, play an important role in the process? Maybe this just happened to be mutated and doing nothing. Uh, so we have to tell, first thing we have to tell the difference between is this a truly so-called functional gene or functional mutation or it's not functional mutation. And, uh, and so we have to do experiments in culture dishes by changing the piece of DNA and say, okay, does it make a difference or not? Uh, for example, you may see cell proliferate faster, uh, or may, you may see cells die less or die more, uh, or you can see cells uh, migrate better or less, so they can, you know, just like humans, they can move from one place to another. Uh, and so there are many different behaviors we can start to see. 
of course, you can also do the same thing uh, once you put cancer cells into the mouse to see whether or not in an intact animal you can see uh, differences in uh, tumor genesis, uh, the way basically the process by which a tumor is formed. So there are many different readouts we can do once we can manipulate these genes. So if you manipulate genes in a Petri dish or you can manipulate genes in a mouse, um, is there a role for this gene editing in people? Like if you know, thanks to the Human Genome Project and thanks to previous work that's gone on, that a particular mutation uh, is involved in tumorigenesis of a particular cancer. Um, is it possible to edit that gene so that it's not mutated anymore and then reduce people's risk of developing cancer? Can we do that? Oh, that's a great question. And actually, um, there are actually quite some uh, clinical trials that's ongoing now, uh, not necessarily against cancer, but in other diseases that have been using CRISPR as a technology to as a potential curative uh, therapy. Uh, and there are a few uh, clinical trials using CRISPR now uh, in cancer setting, which I probably mentioned later. But the majority of activity currently is in uh, genetic diseases. Uh, one of the uh, prime example is uh, sickle cell anemia. Uh, you may have heard of sickle cell anemia, which is uh, a disease that uh, caused by a particular mutation in a gene that's in producing a protein very important in red blood cells. Uh, and because of this mutation, uh, the red blood cells will have some uh, non-normal behaviors, so-called sickling behaviors, uh, and that causes many different symptoms in, in humans. And we have known this uh, for uh, quite a few decades now, uh, which gene causes disease. Uh, and uh, there's a potential strategy to deal with this. So the gene that's being uh, mutated uh, in sickle cell disease is a gene called uh, hemoglobin, which is a probably the most abundant protein uh, present in red blood cells. Uh, and this protein has several different forms. There's a form called embryonic form of the gene and as well as adult form of the gene. So when we are a baby, uh, actually still in the fetus, uh, we actually express so-called the, the, the embryonic form of this gene. Uh, and then once we become born and become adults, we change to a very similar gene, uh, the adult form of the gene. Uh, the reason for that is because uh, in the uterus, uh, as an embryo, versus once you are out of mother, uh, you are completely different exposure to oxygens. So the oxygen demand and the concentration is very, very different. So we have to adjust that based on that. Uh, however, we know that the embryonic version of the hemoglobin, although it's not as good as an adult form in terms of carrying functions, it's still very, very good. Uh, and if we can change the gene expression within the red blood cells in the sick cell patients to convert the adult one to the embryonic one, you can actually cure many of the symptoms of the patients. So this is basically is one area where CRISPR is actually very actively being explored uh, in both uh, research setting as well as a clinical trial setting. And this may be actually one day uh, become a cure for the disease. So that, that sounds really promising. My only question, though, is given the fact that hemoglobin is so abundant and they're in all of your red blood cells and you have thousands of red blood cells, how do, how do you change the genes in every single one of those? Um, 
Like, how does that work? Yeah, so, so it turns out that you don't have to change every single cell's hemoglobin. You only need to change a subset of the cells that carry this mutation. As long as you correct some of them, uh, you don't have to correct 100%. So that's really the reason why this is first used in this kind of diseases, where you only need to restore the function of some of cells, but not all cells. Uh, this this is going to be slightly tougher for cancer, of course. If you have a cancer, you have to correct almost every single cell. And that becomes an issue potentially. Potentially using the same technology against cancer. However, there's one way that's actually being explored right now to to potentially using cancer therapies is to change the immune system of the that's basically fighting cancers. So for that, you don't have to change every single cell within the immune system. You only need to change some of the cells within the immune system, and that may have a better outcome for cancer patients. And that's exactly being actually being tried right now. So there are um, several clinical trials. Uh, one is in the United States, a few outside of the United States. Uh, that's basically using CRISPR as a technology to change T cells. T cell is a, one of the immune cells we have in the body uh, to, uh, to help fight against cancer uh, using the T-cell therapy. How exactly does that work? <clears throat> so so, so I, I don't know if you have heard of uh, currently there's uh, one kind of uh, uh, immune therapy called a CAR, CAR, CAR T-cell therapy. So CAR T-cell therapy is basically we take normal T-cells and then we engineer the T-cells so that you will have a uh, sort of a fighting uh, ability have a recognition. Uh, we call it a receptor. Have recognition specifically against a certain type of cancer, uh, and so we can engineer the T cell to have this uh, special ability, and then we can put them back into the patients. And this has shown uh, very good success against a few different kinds of cancers, such as B cell uh, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, and uh, so it's being currently being tested in many other different settings. Uh, but, but of course, one of the things that's happening with the T cells is one. You put the, the so-called CAR manipulation of the T cells, called CAR T cells. Uh, they can be active against cancer, but then they got exhausted. So the question is, can we somehow change it uh, using CRISPR to inactivate the exhaustion cap- capacity or the blocking capacity for the T cell to be further? useful against cancer. So, so this can further enhance the therapeutic outcome uh, and the effectiveness of the cancer. So the current therapies are using uh, the, the clinical trials using CRISPR is trying to engineer the T cells so they can have better potency against cancer. Why do the T cells get exhausted and how can CRISPR help it not get exhausted? So uh, if you think about uh, the, the immune system, which one of the immune system functions carried out by T cells is to recognize specific intruding stuff initially. We think that's how it works. Uh, but you don't want this to be activated too much. If you activate T cell too much, then you can have potential Toxicity. Toxicity against yourself, your own cells, and yeah. for example, in the, in the uh, autoimmune diseases, right? So you have to control the activity. So the nature has designed the system in a way that once it's activated, you will have to be stopped. Uh, and so this kind of exhaustion process is one way the, the system is controlling itself. So that once it's activated, you don't want to do it. You, you, for example, you don't want to press the gas pedal too much. Once you press the gas pedal, there's naturally something on the back that breaks it down. So this is basically the natural uh, ability of the T cells to have. Uh, so basically, the, the CRISPR currently trying to do is try to start to adjust this feedback control system so that you will have more mileage uh, out of the same gallon of gas. Mm-hmm. And so and so, are they using CRISPR technology also to kind of 
edit the the genes that the T cells will recognize, kind of like the bacteria recognizing foreign intruders, like you were saying? So currently, so it's, are you talking about potentially using CRISPR to change the, the genome of the cancer cells themselves? Well, that too. Mm-hmm. But uh, so so that in part, changing the, the genome of the cancer cells themselves. But then, you know how you were talking about how bacteria use CRISPR to recognize foreign invaders and then attack them like a, an immune system. So... Uh, is there a thought to using that same technology to introduce that those genes of cancer cells to the T cells so that the T cells recognize that um, and fight that just like a bacteria immune system would? Uh, so, so to my knowledge, this hasn't been uh, very actively explored uh, at the moment. I wouldn't say it will never be a possibility because there are many different uh, you know, in science, you know, we have to open our imagination, and uh, uh, and uh, there are lots of things that may seem very, very far from the clinics, but turns out they could be very, very close. You know, so so that's why we have to support many different kinds of cancer research. Uh, so the, the slight difference between the bacteria system and the the T cell and the cancer cell system is that uh, the bacteria they have the invading DNA into their own cells; they mm-hmm. want to destroy them. Whereas in the case of T cells targeting cancer cells, is that it's between the cells, so you don't have necessarily have the DNA crossing the, between the two cell types. So as long as the the cancer cells have some of the protein fragments that T cells can recognize, uh, that will be allow the T cells to to attack them. Dr. John Liu is an associate professor of genetics at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.